You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Good morning, everyone. I uh, appreciate you persevering through daylight savings and, and making it, whether on time or not. Uh, it's still good to see you all. For those watching online, hello to you as well. I gave you the thumbs up. That was pretty cool. Um, uh, we're going we're gonna to jump right into uh, the Gospel of Luke, continuing our sermon series. Uh, today we're going to be in Luke chapter 18. Uh, we're going to re- be reading from verses 1 to 17. And, and uh, so if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to pull them out, open up to Luke 18. If not, it'll be on the screen behind me as well. So... Let's submit to Jesus' teaching here from Luke 18. And it says, Now he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. He said, There was a judge in a certain town who didn't fear God or respect people, and a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. Then the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay helping them? I tell you that he will swiftly grant them justice. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. People were bringing infants to him so that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Jesus, however, invited them, saying, Let the little children come to me and don't stop them, because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. This is the word of the Lord. So it goes without saying that we are currently living in trying times. Amen? Yeah? Our souls are weary. Our tears flow often. Our own smallness and and, and human weaknesses become more and more evident in the face of such global tragedy and and hurt and divisiveness. I mean, we're just 
coming out of and now trying to deal with, you know, the personal, national, and global fallouts of COVID and everything that came with it, all the emotional, physical, legal, economical, and mental side effects of both the disease as well as the mandates, no matter what side you're on. At the same time, as believers in Canada, we've been feeling ineffectual as the government continues to make law after law concerning issues like abortion and sexuality, which defy what we believe to be God's good and created order. And currently, we're all on the edge of our seats, watching as the world sits on the brink of another potential world war, or nuclear war, even, as Russia continues to make its way into Ukraine, which, if you didn't know, is only the beginning of Putin's desire to recreate the Soviet Union. So that's, this is just the beginning. All of this is going on around us, and it's all become much more than we can bear, or even understand, much less do anything about. I also haven't even mentioned the persistent poverty and hunger throughout the world and outside our front door, or the effects of other diseases in third world countries because of a lack of vaccines and clean water, among other things, or rampant racism in our own nation and abroad, or rising inflation and everything that comes with that, or the daily injustices by corrupt politicians, or the broken families and marital abuse in our own neighborhoods, maybe in our own homes, or the tragedies of natural disasters, and of course the persecution of the saints, which is going on in places like India and Pakistan, even now. Plus, this is all on top of whatever hurt or loss or medical issues or extenuating circumstances or unresolved sins that you yourselves are dealing with in your own lives and in your own relationships and in your own souls. I'm not trying to be a downer, but we simply can't turn a blind eye or pretend everything is all right. Because the truth is, injustice, tragedy, and the devastating effects of sin and evil are ever abundant throughout our world, including within our own hearts. And so if we're honest or have any inkling of self-awareness at all, I think we'd be quick to admit that, as I said, it is all too much for us to bear. It's overwhelming. It's heart-wrenching. It's angering, anxiety-inducing. And for those of us who tend to dwell on it too much, it can become despairing or even maddening. Either way, I think I can, I can say confidently that most of us are desperate, desperate, to see all of this evil and injustice dealt with. We want to do something about it. But that's the thing. How, how do we deal with it? What, what can we even do about it? When it feels like these issues are way too big and we are way too small. I mean, I mean, measured up against all that's going on, it quickly becomes apparent that we're clearly too weak to deal with it ourselves besides maybe making a little, you know, dent here or there. So then what can we even do? What, what can we do that will actually make an impact? But Jesus tells us, we can pray. We can pray. 
Of course, we should also do tangible things in Jesus' name, like feed the hungry, clothe the, clothe the poor, give generously, preach the gospel, and, and more, all according to the grace that we've been given and led by the Holy Spirit to do. Absolutely. But yet, we're reminded here that the most effective tool which has been graciously placed at our disposal is prayer. Prayer. And, and this is not a last-ditch resort when we can't do anything else, which we often treat it as, don't we? Like, well, I tried everything else, I guess I'll pray. No, th this is the best and biggest weapon we have on the spiritual battlefield that we are living in. And make no mistake, it's a spiritual battle. That is our enemy, Satan, evil, the forces of darkness. That's the battle we're in. That's why we're seeing all this chaos in this world. So we need to fight on that battlefield. And so prayer should be the first, and first thing that we do. Precisely because prayer connects us and aligns us to the heart of the holy God who listens to us with compassion and mercy and is, and is the only one who is sovereign over all of it. Which is why Jesus encourages us in these parables that in the face of injustice, whether that injustice is against us or whether it's because of us, we're called to pray. And not only pray, but to get on our knees and cry out to the Lord. To take a posture of a humble, dependent infant who can do nothing but cry out to their parent to come through for them. And the reason that infant is crying out to, to, to its parent is because he or she believes that they will come through for them. And so it's only with that childlike faith and posture of, of trust and dependence before him, Jesus says, that will inherit the kingdom of God. Which is what we want, right? Because that is the only place, that is the only place where perfect peace and grace and justice reign unending in the presence of our holy God. That's what we long for. We long for the kingdom. And the Lord wants to bring us into it if only we'd humble ourselves and surrender our lives before him. The Lord promises this in, in 2 Chronicles 7, 14 and 15, among other places. He says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open, and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. So while this, this promise was specifically for the Israelites at that time, and the place which it was referring to was, was Solomon's temple, where, where God's presence would dwell among them, it still reflects the heart of God, right? That if we humble ourselves and cry out to the Lord for repentance and healing in our land, he will answer, he will do it, he will bring his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. And this echoes Jesus' sentiments from the Sermon on the Mount when he proclaims, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Right? Poor in spirit, mourning, meek. This is the posture of prayer. 
crying out and surrendering to God because we've come to the place where we've recognized that only God can do what needs to be done. And to be honest, there are times when when it's hard to humble ourselves like this, right? Mostly because of our pride and our stubbornness and our self-righteousness. But yet in this day and age, like I said, with such massive issues and injustices going on in our lives and in this world, issues which are obviously out of our hands and out of our control, I think many of us are already there. It's like in those Godzilla movies, right? Whenever Godzilla shows up, everyone's like, nope, and they just turn tail and run, right? They know. They can't do anything about it. They recognize instantly that they're too small to do anything about it themselves. Or for a biblical example, it's like the Israelites facing up to Goliath. And what I'm saying is anyone who's been paying attention to both the events of our world or anyone who has any self-reflection at all and sees the sin and brokenness in their own lives and in their own hearts, is most likely already well aware of how helpless and small and incapable we are of dealing with any of it on our own. So it's not hard to admit that we need help. How many of us need help? We desperately need to be rescued by someone greater and stronger and more capable than us. To not only bring healing and and restoration to this broken world and to our lives, to not only strike down our Goliaths, but to help us persevere through it all. And help us grow through it. And so in many respects, Jesus' encouragement here to cry out to him and and come to him like a child who depends on him and needs help, that should come as a relief for us today. Because that's the state we're already in. We are like children who need help, who need to be cared for and comforted and rescued. Some of us just have to acknowledge it. And so for me, personally, to to know that God will listen to us and answer us whenever we cry out to him in those times when our sense of need is is so overwhelming, and to know that we're we're not only allowed to, to come to him like this, but that we should, that we're supposed to, That actually fills my heart afresh with faith and hope and thanksgiving. Because at this point in my life, I'll be honest, that's the only way I can come to him right now. With desperation, with cries of injustice and confusion, with pleas of guidance and mercy. And so this is the encouragement for all of us this morning. Jesus is teaching us to come to the Lord as we are humble and broken, with our struggles, with with, with our cries of lament and for justice, and with our repentant pleas for forgiveness and mercy. For his strength is revealed in our weakness. When we are weak, he is strong, for he exalts the humble. Though to be fair, it's also... It's also often when we're overwhelmed or struggling. It's in those times, right, that God can feel distant and far off, like he's not listening to us. It's in those times specifically 
when we might feel like we have to keep knocking on God's door and calling out to Him and pestering Him and annoying Him until He answers, just like the widow had to do towards the ungodly and unrighteous judge in Jesus' parable that we read this morning. She, she had to pester him, right? She had to pester him day and night until the judge finally was so annoyed that he gave her the justice she sought. He didn't do it because it was the right thing. He did it because he wanted to get rid of her. But Jesus' point here is that, that while we should also be persistent in coming before the Lord, like the widow was, the difference is that our persistence shouldn't be due to the fact that we think God is also like the unrighteous judge, uncaring and not paying attention, but rather that, that our persistence in prayer should come from the confidence of knowing that God isn't like that judge at all. He's the opposite. Jesus is telling us that if this widow was able to get justice from this jerk of a judge who doesn't care about anyone but himself— then how much more should we be able to receive our answers to prayer from God, the all-powerful and righteous judge who does care about everyone? We're being told here that we can and should cry out to God persistently, and we can do it confidently because he doesn't ignore us, because he does hear us. As the psalmist proclaims in Psalm 18.6, this one verse it describes everything that's going on here. It's, it says, In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. See that humble, humble cry, right? That humble cry of distress. And from his temple, he heard my voice. And my cry to him reached his ears. Our cries and our distress before God reach His ears. Our consistency and confidence in prayer should be rooted in that powerful fact that prayer works, that the Lord listens, and that He cares for us, and that He'll answer us. Even better, that He'll answer us according to His nature and His promises and His perfect will for this earth and for our lives. And that, as Jesus says, he'll answer swiftly. Though, of course, the word swiftly is a matter of perspective, right? Because what's swift to God may not always seem swift to us. Especially when we want the trial we're in to just end already. But the reality is that his judgment and his justice always come at the right time, and when it does, it comes fast and true. For us, though, it may take patience sometimes. And sometimes part of the answer of the prayer is persevering through whatever we're going through and growing through that. But as justice and judgment always come at the right time. In, in fact, right before this passage, at the end of Luke 17, Jesus was explaining to his disciples again about his second coming when the kingdom of God will be revealed in full, and that it'll be like the days of Noah or Lot, right? Where, where people will just be casually going about their daily lives, some thinking that Jesus will never come again because it's been so long. And then, boom, like lightning across the sky. 
which means quickly and, and that everyone will notice. We'll know. Jesus will return in glory. And the righteous will be taken up with him, with him, while the unrighteous, those who've rejected Jesus, will be left to be judged swiftly. But until that day comes, as it says in 2 Peter, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, but is patient with us that all might come to repentance. Right? So, so, so God is not slow in answering our prayers and coming through for us. He's not not swift. He's, rather, he's being patient with us. He's giving us time. Because he'd rather see us all saved and sanctified than be judged on that day. Though again, when that day of justice does come and everything is made right and good, it will come fast and true like lightning. So we can hope in that. So whether or not the, the specific answer to our prayers comes on the, on the day of the Lord or whether it comes earlier, doesn't matter. We can always come before the Lord with confidence in Him, knowing that He is sovereign and that He will act justly and perfectly and always at the right time. Which is also a, a primary key to prayer, that confidence in faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Is this not one of the reasons that Jesus asks, nevertheless, when, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on this earth? Because, because this is the underlying point here. If, if we lack faith, we won't believe God hears us or that he answers our prayers, right? And, and, and we'll soon grow weary and lackluster in any kind of persistence or desire to draw near to him at all. Eventually, whatever hope or confidence we had will grow cold and dead, and we will forget him. Which I think is, is part of the reason Jesus is building up his disciples here, right? So, so that they'll keep the faith. So that, so that by it, they'll remain persistent in drawing near to the Lord, especially in times of trial or persecution or despair when they might become discouraged or, or, or start to think that God is distant and, 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 and isn't listening to them at all. And when we look at their testimony in the book of Acts, when we read through that, we can clearly see that they certainly needed this encouragement, this reminder over and over again. In fact, I, I, I wonder if, if, it, if it often came to mind in those times when they were beaten and persecuted for preaching Jesus' name, or when they were imprisoned for it, and so on and so forth. Because in the midst of it all, we, we can see that, that, that his disciples remained persistent in prayer, and God always came through for them. And so we need this encouragement for our faith as well. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. Like, like the widow, don't give up on praying especially when everything seems bleak and overwhelming and unfair. Don't give up on confidently, yet humbly, crying out to the Lord with your laments and your questions and your desires for justice until you receive it. Because you will. Because he hears you and he knows what to do about it.
As A.B. Simpson writes, prayer is our best defense against every form of opposition and trial. Prayer is our best weapon in our warfare of work for God and men. The church needs to learn afresh the power of united prayer and prayer as a real business that takes hold of God and expects him to do real things for us. Do we expect him to do real things for us? We should. Because he does, and he will. And the best part is, as I mentioned earlier, we don't have to earn God's favor or manipulate him with fancy words or bribes or pestering or even good works, as we'll learn in a second. We don't need to do any of those things in order to... In, in order for him to work and act on, on our behalf. He answers and listens to us simply when we humbly and honestly come before him because it's who he is. It's his nature. Because he loves us. Because he's compassionate and merciful and just. And he cannot deny himself. But yet this also means that we can't just come to him and then just ask for anything and expect God to divvy up. James 4.3 reminds us of this. It says, you ask and, and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Right? Asking wrongly isn't, you know, saying, isn't saying the right words in the right order. You know, well, I didn't say my prayer correctly. No, that's not what it's talking about here. It's talking about our motive, right? You, you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. So part of what it means to humble ourselves before the Lord is to lay aside our own selfish motives and acknowledge that God knows better than we do, right? Surrendering ourselves before him is to seek and submit to his perfect will and his purpose. It's to acknowledge that he knows better than, than, than we, that he knows better than we do about what we should be praying Fortunately, the Holy Spirit also intercedes for us when we don't know what to say, right? He knows better than we do about what we should be praying, and he knows the right answer to our prayers. He knows what we need. This is, after all, how Jesus teaches us to pray. In the Sermon on the Mount, right? Our Father, who art in heaven, that's that posture of a dependent and trusting child. Then hallowed be your name. That's humbling ourselves before God as holy, as hallowed. And then your kingdom come, your will be done, right? That's surrendering our selfish motives in place of a desire to see God's heart and perfect plan played out. Not ours. In other words, when we've truly and honestly humbled ourselves before him, we'll begin to we'll just naturally begin to pray for God to do things in our lives and on this earth which align with his nature and his promises and his kingdom come, according to his word. Things like justice and restoration and healing and love and grace and provision and wisdom. And so if we come before God in arrogance and selfishness, it's going to get us nowhere except for maybe being humbled. Because he humbles the proud. In fact, 
Jesus then goes on to tell another parable about two men who enter the temple to pray. One is a tax collector, which was one of the most disliked and often the most corrupt of political positions in all of Judah. And as we step into tax season, I think we can agree that nothing's changed there, right? But so for some, obviously, this this corrupt political employee should have had no right to be entering the temple and drawing near to the Lord. But yet Jesus tells us that of the two men, he's the only one who leaves justified in God's sight. Because with his body and his eyes held low in humility before the Lord, with his hand beating his chest, he simply cries out in repentance to God, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The other man, though, again, was a Pharisee. A religiously devout man who felt like he had every right to draw near to God. And that he even deserved God's listening ear and respect even because, as he declares, he fasts twice a week and tithes 10% of everything he owns. Good for you, buddy. Regarding the act of fasting, which he mentions, this is actually more than the law of Moses even requires. So that's probably a big part of what's feeding his ego here and his arrogance and why he actually gives thanks to God that he's not like other men, like other sinners who aren't as pious as him. And then he looks over at the tax collector and he's like, thank you, I'm not like that guy. Can you imagine? Oh, yeah, we probably can because we probably do that all the time. Yet in the end, it's not him who walks away justified. It's actually the tax collector. For the tax collector is the one who recognizes his lack, who recognizes his guilt of sin, and who recognizes his need for God's mercy and grace. It's the tax collector, not the Pharisee, who humbles himself before the Lord in prayer and with a broken and contrite heart, simply repents and cries out to the Lord. So this parable tells us a lot. First, it's a reminder that that we're not saved from our sin by any kind of work we do, but that we're justified by faith in God's sight, by His grace alone, right? Because it's Jesus alone who won our salvation for us through His death on the cross. Jesus was perfectly righteous for us. Jesus paid for our sin for us as the perfect sacrifice. Which means that like the tax collector, we don't need to be perfect. We don't need to be amazingly religiously devout before we come to God in prayer. Rather, we can come before him through faith in the name of Jesus. And this is good news for us because I think we often erroneously or even functionally hold on to this idea that before God will listen to us or answer us, we need to do something good for him or or promise will change or become someone morally better. We think we need to earn his attention somehow. The Pharisee thought this, right? And even more, he thought that because he did these things, because he was so pious, that he deserved God's ear. 
But that's simply not true at all. Because again, Jesus alone, our high priest, has done everything that was necessary to give us access to the presence of God. His death and resurrection cut that curtain in two. It's because of him that we can enter into God's presence and come before the throne of grace. This is why God's word tells us as well that all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. Because he alone made them available to us by his perfect work. Make no mistake though, being saved by grace will eventually result in a changed heart that leads us more and more to desire to do good works and and to live by faith and obedience to him. But yet, thankfully for us, that isn't the requirement to come to God in prayer. Again, we don't need to pester God for him to hear us, and in the same vein, we don't need to impress God or manipulate him for him to hear us either. Rather, the only condition is that we come before Jesus with a humble faith and a childlike dependence. Which which means we can come to him broken. We can come to him in our shame. We can come to him with our questions and our laments. We can come to him with our concerns and with our anxieties for ourselves and for others and for the world, with our needs and, and and our requests and with all our imperfections. We can come to Jesus. And we can also be confident that through the blood of Jesus, that he will answer our prayer. That he'll restore us when we're broken. That he'll forgive us when we we repent. That he'll strengthen us in the power of his spirit when we're weak. That he'll give us peace and wisdom in our confusion. He'll free us when we're bound to sin. Bring justice whenever there's injustice. Comfort us when we're in distress. And provide for us when we lack For he is willing and he is capable. He is God. So whenever we we stare out and, 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 and we look up at all the atrocities and gross injustices and evil and sin in this world and in our lives, whenever we find ourselves or those we love in circumstances which are too difficult for us to bear, when things seem hopeless, we are not hopeless. As God's children, we are not hopeless. As his elect, we are not hopeless. So we don't need to feel powerless or wonder what we can do about it all, because we've been given the greatest resource available to us. Prayer. Prayer. So humble yourselves and come near to the Lord. Pray persistently and don't give up. It's never in vain when you pray in the name of Jesus for his kingdom to come, for his justice, for his peace, for his grace, for his restoration, for his love and his glory to reign on earth as it is in heaven. So pray with confidence before the Lord because he hears you and he will answer you. As it says in Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's take some time to do that now. Let's humble ourselves before the throne of grace and confidently draw near to the Lord by the blood of Jesus, which was shed for the forgiveness of our sins and which ushers us into a new covenant with God. More specifically, I, I want to encourage you all to each take some time to pray and repent and cry out to God. And then when you're ready, I'll invite you to approach the stage and you can pick up the elements for communion, which are right here on the, on the tables, which represent his body broken for you and his blood that was shed. And then I'll encourage you to take them on your own or with your family this morning. And if you would like someone to pray with you, our prayer team will be standing near the back of the room ready and willing to do that for you as well. That's part of humbling ourselves before the Lord is confessing our sins to one another and being willing to ask for prayer, right? And they're there every week. They're ready and willing to pray for you. So I'm going to pray, and then I'll invite you to spend some time on your own in prayer, humbling yourselves and crying out to the Lord. Heavenly Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we come to you as your children, knowing that you are our Father, that you love us, that you care for us, that you hear our cries, that you hear our laments, that you know our need. And so, Lord, we come to you confidently this morning through the blood of Jesus, which was shed for us. And by his name, we, we, we bow down before you. We fall down before you. And we do it with confidence, knowing that you hear us, that you listen to us, that you care for us, Lord. So, Lord, as we come before you with our prayers, with our requests, with our thanksgiving, Lord, I thank you that you know what we need and that you will answer. And we glorify your name.